Hi, bearded people. Welcome to the thing we're going to do. Okay, this is what's going to happen. A very uh, lovely man named Seth is going to come up here and talk about a record that I actually like a lot. It's a Bjork record. And then uh, these amazing musicians are going to play some songs from that record. And then I'll come up here and talk truth to power about The Replacements, Tim, um, which is also a record that I find important. Guys, that's a plug for the name of the show. It's called Important Records. If you're in the room, you know what it is. If you're listening at home, you'll figure it out. It's a lot of fun. So without further ado, I'm going to bring up Seth Vanek. Seth is a fantastic man. He's part of this uh, organization called Homeroom. And I think this is his fourth important records. And this is the fifth one overall. And I'm just saying these things to buy time because he wanted to have a dramatic entrance. And I understand that. It's very nice to be doing this at Saki. We're at Saki Records in Chicago, Illinois. If you're listening at home, please support them. They are fantastic. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for the absolutely fantastic mentor, Seth Vanek, everybody. Seth. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you. Thank you, everyone who's here. Um, so it's a, it's a top ten list. Um, I w- I'm very pleased that some of my favorite musicians uh, are here and are going to perform some of my favorite songs. Um, you'll get to hear them after I, I talk. Um, that was very nice surprise that they agreed to do that. And uh, as I was talking to people about preparing for this, I thought that it would be like a slightly controversial uh, position to take to say that Vespertine was my favorite album by Bjork. Um, but the more people I talked to, everyone agreed with me. So, um, but that doesn't what didn't stop me from writing a, a very strongly worded polemic uh, in favor of it, which I'll, I'll share for you. I, um, it won't be that bad. Um, but um, usually in the past, uh, for my l- least, uh, my last three important records, I found a way to like write about a personal way that I connected to the record, and um, I didn't do that this time. I don't, I don't have any very interesting things to say about my own biography or, or personal life in relation to this record, other than that it's one that I really like. Yeah, it's a great makeout record. Um, I don't think anyone wants to hear about anyone else's makeouts, though, except maybe Bjork and uh, Matthew Barney. So, um, so I thought I would just, just tell you why I think this is Bjork's strongest work and, and why I think of it as a winter record. When we thought of doing a, uh, an event like this during this time, we thought we might talk about holiday music, but instead we're, I'm talking about a, a record I think sounds very wintry. So... Um, You know, we know that Bjork was one of the most adventurous pop stars of the 90s, but I think she was still sort of a pop star in the traditional sort of Madonna, David Bowie model, uh, meaning that each album sort of presents a different aesthetic or style or or fashion through the uh, choice of the person who produces the album, and then also kind of... also through um, music videos and other uh, imagery that goes along with the album, and then that each kind of and then a tour that follows it, and each kind of presents a different iteration of the of the persona of the performer. And so I think that's one way of understanding Bjork's career, at least up to Vespertine, uh, and including Vespertine. Um, and I think that the album kind of adheres to that model um, pretty closely, but then I think it breaks from that model in that it establishes Bjork as a... Um, it, it does a better job of establishing her as a composer, I think, as well as a performer. 
um, and then kind of leads to this, what I see as a sort of second act of her career where she becomes uh, an auteur, I guess, is the word that I, I thought I should use instead of a chanteuse, as long as we're using French. Um, and so, um, so in order to make this case, I thought I would uh, take a page out of Brandon's book and kind of go through some of her records, uh, record by record, and kind of give a little context. So I'll just do that very quickly. Um, you know, after Vespertine, I think that she was more free to be a little bit more ambitious and conceptual with her work, which you can kind of see now with her latest record, Biophilia, which is just like way out there in terms of being like a concept record that incorporates interactive apps and like science workshops and like all this imagery about the natural world. Um, and I think that has all of its germs in Vespertine, and I'll tell you why. Um, but to go back to the beginning, her first album was called Debut. And it was a very self-conscious sort of introduction of her as, an, as a solo artist. And, of course, it was reacting against her as the lead singer of the Sugar Cubes. And so I think uh, there are two ways that it sort of distinguished itself. Um, one was by being anything that uh, wasn't punk or guitar-driven. So um, it really put its stock in the world of dance music, like kind of techno and house. And I think that something that's important to keep in mind with Bjork is that um, she's an international pop star and not an American pop star. So to the extent that there are um, marketing decisions, I think they're focused more towards the UK um, music scene rather than the American music scene. So I think that uh, in the UK in the 90s was very dance music obsessed. So, um, so I think that explains a certain amount of the aesthetic there. Um, and so you hear that a lot on debut. There's a lot of music that sounds like, like techno music with really big hooks and broad production. Um, the exception to me is my favorite song from the records is called Venus as a Boy. And it has a, a few things that sort of um, link in with the sound of Vespertine, which is this very chiming kind of percussion figure and then very swirling string arrangement. And the string arrangement in particular, uh, Bjork has said that she deliberately arranged it to sound like um, Bollywood music. And that is to have these very um, sweeping unison lines that have this very uh, evocative sound that, that links to Bollywood music. So already we see that Bjork isn't like just a, you know, Icelandic Celine Dion. She has these very focused and intelligent um, ideas about orchestration, and she's a voracious listener, and, uh, and, and she knows what, what effect that she wants to make, and, and that's what she does. Um, the other undertone running through debut is a sort of jazz undertone, um, in 1990, she recorded a, an album called Glinglo, which was like basically a jazz album. It had a piano trio instrumentation and her singing in a sort of jazz style. Um, and so um, on debut, that manifests with this song. Uh, she does a s jazz standard called Like Someone in Love with, with harp accompaniment. Um, and uh, she recorded another standard called I Remember You that ended up as a B-side. Um, and then, so there's, you know, there's that sort of jazz part, and the harp kind of becomes a theme, too. Anyway, debut got mixed reviews. Um, I don't know if people really knew what to make of it at the time. Um, I didn't find it until much later, but um, to continue on, her next album was called Post. It was in 1995. The main um, collaborator for debut, Nellie Hooper, uh, did some work on it, as well as a, a whole stable of different producers, including Howie Bernstein, Graham Massey, uh, Tricky, and uh, Umer Diodato did some arrangements on it as well. And, and it's kind of all over the place. It really 
goes towards this eclectic sound. Um, and you can hear it on the singles, Army of Me, Hyper Ballad, Isobel, Possibly Maybe. To me, one of the great tragedies of Bjork's career is that the song It's Oh So Quiet became her biggest hit. Um, it's a big band arrangement of a song and uh, it had a really great video that maybe you remember that was like kind of referencing classic MGM musicals with like big crane shots and choreography. In fact, I think it was meant to reference um, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, the French musical, um, with the Michel Legrand uh, soundtrack. It was directed by Spike Jones before he was a big-time Hollywood director, and it, it just played on MTV endlessly. So the song became a big hit, but I think that it had this effect of, you know, kind of pigeonholing Bjork in this, in this way that didn't really um, do her justice as, as an artist, maybe. Um, the rest of the album is, you know, a mixture of like, uh, like trip hop, if you'll allow me to use that term. Um, it's kind of chamber music backed ballads, um, more sort of techno or house influenced things. And it's just really eclectic. And I think that in the 90s, eclecticism could be like a, a, a virtue in a way. Uh, it would, it was like quirkiness was a value that you could earn points with. It was a currency. Like, and, and I think that it made uh, Bjork into this sort of, you know, it, either the world was starting to kind of come around to Bjork. I mean, Post sold a, a zillion copies. It did really, really well. So either people were kind of catching up with her or we were kind of shaping her into this sort of uh, manic pixie dream girl that we, we wanted her to be. And, and so I think a little bit of both. Um, but uh, that's sort of how I see the, the arc um, happening. Um, but she went on a huge tour. They put out a, another record of remixes um, called Telegram. I don't know if there's anything really interesting to say about that, except that um, it established her even further as sort of an electronica artist, electronica being another one of those great 90s genre terms that we don't use anymore. And then in 1997, she did Homogenic, and the main collaborator on that was this fellow Mark Bell, and it's much more cohesive, uh, cohesive uh, sonically. And uh, she has said that she wanted a simple sound and just one flavor is how she describes what she was trying to do. And I think that side A has um, five perfectly realized pop songs that have just great production and instrumentation um, to, to de you know, describe the character and the story of each song. Um, you have the beautiful unravel with this kind of slowed down drum and wind textures, and then you have these lush epic orchestrations on songs like Bachelorette. Uh, and then side B to me uh, feels a little more thrown together with these sort of monotonous beats and, and more minimal uh, textures and sort of diary entry lyrics that, that are redeemed by the way that Bjork delivers her lyrics. She's kind of like Christopher Walken. You know how they say that he takes all the punctuation out of his dialogue? I feel like Bjork has a way of taking really mundane, plain-spoken language and delivering it in a way that, that is like kind of revelatory, and it hits your ear in a way it doesn't sound like what she's saying is as, as superficial as it is. But some of the lyrics are really dismal. Um, except, you know, and then, but sometimes they're very simple and, and, and kind of hit the target, like on All is Full of Love, which I think is a, a very spare and, and gorgeous song. Um, also, I think the album has her best song to date, which is called Yoga, which is just this really beautiful, um, not the um, meditation practice. I think it's, it's at, named after a friend of hers that she wrote it about. It's J-O-G-A. And uh, it's, the, the string arrangement in particular is really like melodic, and it frees her up to do this sort of 
very Bjork emotive singing that she's so good at. Um, so then um, on the tour for that, she she, she um, went with a really stripped down band that was just a string octet and a DJ. Um, and I think that is sort of foreshadowing a little bit of what she did with Vespertine too. On that tour, she used only a, a sort of a DJ duo and a women's choir and a harpist. So then we don't see her again until 2000 where she's the lead in the um, director and uh, all-around terrible person, Lars Van Trier's yeah, Dancer in the Dark, which um, was which was a fine movie, but um, it, I think having her, her be the lead sort of raised the profile of both the movie and and in some ways her, her as well, uh, mostly because the song a song from the movie got nominated for an Oscar. It was a duet that she did with uh, Radiohead's uh, Tom York, and so she showed up at the Oscars. Remember in this really awesome swan dress. Um, um, but that sort of then became this sort of footnote for how eccentric and 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 quirky she was. So again, I think that um, anyway, uh, in in mainstream culture, Bjork's becoming more and more of a caricature. But uh, in in her music, I think she's becoming even more mature. Um, and then I bring up Dancer in the Dark also because um, it was she had a very publicly t tense relationship with the director, and uh, sometimes in interviews, it's it's. Um, said that the hushed, kind of peaceful mood of Vespertine is a reaction to sort of the stressful um, feeling she had of, of being an actress in that movie. And she shows her hand a little bit on, on Vespertine. There's like this little tiny song sandwiched in between two tracks um, that's very short and just has two lines where she says, there's too much clinging to me, there's too much pressure, and I think she's kind of, um, you know, maybe blowing off some steam there. So, okay, so now I'll talk about the record. It's, um, you know, one way of thinking about it in that sort of model that I set out for pop stardom, you could put it in that sort of uh, arc where instead of these sorts of um, big, bombastic, kind of acid house beats, she's going towards glitchy IDM by choosing to work with producers like Matmos and a uh, console and a guy that goes by opiate named Thomas Knack. Um, she samples Oval. Um, but it's her most sonically cohesive record. And, and that's kind of what I like about it. The sort of needless eclecticism is, is gone. And, and, and it's very deliberate, her choices on this. And, and she says that there's two inspirations for it. And one was um, Napster. Um, if you can believe that. Um, so I'm going to read a quote from her. Um, but I, Let's see, let me have it here. Um, I use microbeats, a lot of whispery vocals, which I think sound amazing when they're downloaded because of the secrecy of the medium. Um, the only acoustic instruments I would use would be those that sound good after they've been downloaded. So the harp, the music box, the celeste, and the clavichord. They're plucky sounds. And the strings ended up being more panoramic textures in the background. It's all about being in a little house on your own. The strings would be like white mountains outside. So, you know, this could sound like something that an artist says kind of retroactively to a journalist in an interview to make something sound more relevant and of the moment. And it's true that music writers will eat that shit up. Um, so I wouldn't blame anyone for doing that. Um, and I don't know if you remember sort of the, all the journalistic hand-wringing around Napster in 2001, but there was like... 
as many think pieces. It was like HBO Girls level of think piece saturation about Napster. Um, so, so you know, um, but I think Bjork is really sincere about thinking about um, the medium of MP3 uh, as being a driving force of, of the production. I think that that crystalline bell-like quality um, is is very deliberate, and I think it's very savvy of her to think about it. Um, the harp is used very liberally on the album to the extent that the harpist uh, Zena Parkins is often credited as one of the main collaborators. Collaborators. Um, she also commissioned and designed these um, music boxes that would play her own original compositions that were like made of lucite, and you can hear those being used on the album as well. There's a lot of celeste and pizzicato strings. Um, one very revealing moment at the end of my favorite song on the album called Undo, it features this, and I think which we'll hear a little later, um, it features this repeated harp line at the end, and it kind of is slowly being um, degraded. Um, the digital resolution of that line gets degraded. And I think, you know, nowadays that's a very um, common gesture, I guess. It's just twisting a knob on a plug-in. But at the time, this was kind of a revelatory thing, I think, for me, because it goes from a harp to kind of a fuzzy chime to a fuzzy bell, and then finally like a fuzzy gong. And, and so it's, it's sonically it's satisfying, but I also think it shows where Bjork's mind is at. She's very acutely aware of digital resolution and, and how the MP3 format has a way of reducing everything to these very small bits and bytes. And so by using um, these instruments that, uh, um, using programming and beats that were very clicky and poppy, but then also other textures that wouldn't uh, that would still sound good in that format. Basically, I think it shows that um, she's aware not only of instrumental timbre, but you know orchestration, studio production, consumer technology, and the music industry. So um, you know she's no dummy. Um, but I find it ironic that just as she is rising to the height of her power as this kind of all-around music producer, she, uh, you know American press is all, kind of reducing her to this eccentric. Icelandic pixie that just wears a stuffed swan and is very flighty and eccentric. So, um, so the other thing is, if you know Vespertine had had like a smash hit, um, that there might have been a chance for that impression to be overshadowed by success. But it's not an album of singles, which I think is kind of to its credit as well. Um, the song "Who Is It," um, which has this really strong, broad hook, um, was produced for the album but was passed up because it didn't sound right and ended up on the follow-up, which is called "Medulla." And um, and is a, a song uh, that's entirely a cappella. And then um, there are some music videos, but um, one of them showed bare breasts, and so MTV didn't want to show it, and so it kind of brought the whole marketing program to a halt. And I think that might have had something to do with the album not being as successful as the previous one. So whether she came into her own as sort of this all-knowing, all-controlling director of her own music at this time, or if she had always been that, and then Vespertine just kind of cleared the way for it, um, I'm not sure, but I definitely hear her sort of perfecting her craft on this record. And I think one of the examples also is lyrics. Um, you know, she sings her heart out in her usual manner, but she also relies less on her singing style to carry lyrics um, th that I think are a little too straightforward or, or, or maybe a little uh, trite. Um, she makes greater attempts towards poetry. She collaborates with Harmony Corinne for the lyric um, on one of the songs, and she adapts um, part of an E.E. E. Cummings poem on another. So I think that she's um, you know, maturing in that part of her craft as well. And then another part of that quote I read earlier where she says it's about being in a little house on your own, I think that's another 
huge strain on this album. The working title was Domestica, uh, and you know, and and the and the album. Um, she got really into this idea of working on her laptop in her house and the coziness of it, and so. Um, she started using sounds that she would record herself in her house of like footsteps and silverware clinking and, and cards being shuffled. And then she brought in these um, San Francisco conceptual artists and electronic musicians, Matmos, to, to sequence them in, into you know, parts of the, of the music. At this point, those guys were most well known for a song that they did called California Rhinoplasty. Um, which used the sounds of uh, actual surgery, like the scraping and suction that goes into a rhinoplasty surgery to make like sort of IDM uh, music. Um, and they have a really great album called A Chance to Cut is a Chance to Cure, and it's, and it's very interesting. To um, I recommend that album. Um, and so Bjork was a fan of that as well. And so, um, so she has, throughout the album, this whole kind of... Um, vast landscape of clicks and pops and whirs and flutters and plinks and scrapes and, and zips, and they're all happening really um, right at the edge of the speaker, like right against your ear if you're wearing headphones. And so that is, um, I think, a really effective uh, 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 um, you know, thing that she's doing. And then there's the non-tonal percussion, and then she has this sort of plinking harp and celeste and music box kind of in the in the middle of it that kind of drives the harmony of the piece but then these um and then these kind of hazy choral figures and arco strings kind of floating and those are the white mountains outside that she describes and so she builds this landscape for her voice or her voices to kind of um move in you know and uh sometimes she's singing really intimately in your ear and then sometimes she's opening up and doing that belting thing um and uh, it's always supported by really well-written arrangements, um, orchestral swells and punctuations. And I think that it's um, one of the most delib um, deliberate and intelligent pieces of orchestration that I, I know of in pop music. Um, and it's the whole album through, I think. It's very consistent throughout. And so, um, and so that's, what, that's one of the things I really value about the record. Um, and I think that, um, you know, she continues with that thread ongoing with her next two albums. The next one, she focuses just on uh, voice, as I mentioned, it's a cappella. So she limits herself to a very specific sonic vocabulary there. I don't think it's as successful of a record. Um, she does a soundtrack for a Matthew Barney film, and then she does another album in 2007 that uses a lot of brass. But the album is also kind of all over the place. That's Volta. Um, so, you know, she's unafraid to kind of go where her creative vision takes her, but I, I like to, um, I always like when I talk like this to try to get people to picture a graph, because to me the arc of Bjork's career is like this graph where you have, um, you know, pop value versus kind of composerly contemporary music cred on one axis, and then like her kind of career, and the middle of the X, it's an X, and the middle of the X is that perfect center point where pop melody and, and thoughtful kind of sonic richness and orchestration meet. And I would say that Vespertine is a little bit to the right of the X for its ability to nail and sustain a mood. Um, and, and I think homogenic is uh, just a little bit to the left with its like really nice hooks and, and melodies, but um, it, it's not, not as composerly. Um, but that's just sort of my perspective. Um, 
So, um, I also think, I'm not going to go into too much depth about um, it being a winter album because I think it's fairly obvious. It just has sort of a crystalline quality um, because of the instrumentation and um, I think it's just perfect music to listen to in the privacy of your own room um, and I think that she designed it that way. Um, and um, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing um, some of the songs performed by Brian and and Ben and, and Jeff. Brian Sopizio and Ben Boy and Jeff Kimmel. So um, I'm going to welcome them to the stage and uh, please uh, enjoy. They're going to play three songs. I'll let them introduce the songs. I would, I would like to, if I may, just say a little bit. I was very excited when Seth asked me to do this and I've been I've been surprised over the years the number and like sort of like the demographics of people who find this record to be one of the most amazing records ever made which it definitely is for me it's like in in my top 10 you know and uh, well one thing was, that surprised me was that uh, I was asked to do it rather than a woman but it also made a lot of sense when I thought about it for a minute. Um, but my first encounter with this record was I moved from like Northwest Ohio to Chicago in 2000, around the time that it came out. And I was in college at the time and spent a lot of time uh, drinking cough syrup and listening to this record and like just hallucinating music videos to all of it. And it was just... Uh, I was usually with other people when that was happening, so I, I don't think of it as a sort of like isolating record. I find I found it very expansive and the sort of pastoral qualities that it has, where like these white white mountains or that sort of thing, or alone in a cabin, or sort of like I mean that's like kind of how I'd grown up, and then I was in the city all of a sudden. So the electronic aspects of it, it made this sort of nice transition for me. It was it was a very way it was a it was a great way to find some peace in the midst of that experience or whatever. Thanks for letting me say that. <laughs> like you had a choice. <laughs> I guess I'm thanking you, Aaron, for letting me say that. <laughs> cool. This is Undo.
trying to hide
I really want to do this song Unravel. I wanted to do Undo and Cocoon and Unravel, which is actually unhomogenic. I was listening to that one around the same time, but we didn't. Uh, we decided to follow the rules. I almost called you to see if we could. I said yes. I said no. I said no. He was really mad at me for a while today. Yeah. We had a really roller coaster. You don't know what it's like to be Ben Blood. You guys are like Bjork and Tricky. Yeah. I'm the Tricky to his Bjork. At some point, I was like, fuck it, let's just do some Neil Young songs. We already did that. That would have gotten my vote. Yeah, that's when we brought Jeff in. Jeff doesn't even like Bjork. Uh, let's do Cocoon. Who would have 
train of pearls Garden by garden Is shot precisely Across an ocean From mouth From From mouth Of a girl like me To a boy on the same page. <laughs> Are you going to tell the people what it is? No. Simplicity and 
darkest pit in me in this pagan poetry Simplicity, the darkest pin in me. It's pagan poetry. actually not the last line of that song, but that's how I always heard it, so yeah. I, I, I don't know. You heard it that way, too? You thought it was, it makes me want to hurt myself? Whoa. There you go. Yeah, it's hand myself over, and I'm like, that is so fucking like, soft and lame. Compared to this, <laughs> just talking about like the darkest pit in me and all this shit, and it's like, 
hand myself over? What? That's nothing. I do that every day. I want to uh, publicly in front of you people here at Saki and for you home listeners, I want to thank Ben Boy for his beautiful piano playing, yeah. Jeff Kimmel for his beautiful clarinet yeah. playing, Brian Sulpizio for his beautiful guitar playing and his uh, extra like sounds that he made with the, the wine bottle and uh, most of all his beautiful singing and band leading. Um, Health and Beauty is one of my favorite bands. If you're not listening to their album Winter Magic or Guns or any of their records or seeing them regularly, you're a dumbass and um, we're not friends. Um, they're working on a new record and um, so keep an eye out for it. Um, so uh, I'm very uh, grateful to them uh, for, for playing those songs. They, they were wonderful. So we're going to take a really quick break. Do you need to say anything? Do you guys have any shows coming up? Health and Beauty? Any shows I should tell them about? Uh, no. No? All right, keep an eye out. Okay, real quick break, and then we're set up for, uh, oh, January 13th. So it'll be a sort of a Moon Bros. H&B mashup with Matt Schneider. January 13th. Okay, quick break, and then Rock Falls and Brandon Weatherby. Replacements, Tim. Important Records. My name is Brandon Weatherby. This is Important Records. We've already established that. Seth did something very intimate and quiet and nice. And Health and Beauty did something intimate and quiet and nice, and it made us appreciate Bjork. Not anymore! All right, guys, number ones. She and him could only look slightly to the right. Two album covers prove that. Number two, Foo Fighters Sonic Highways is the album of the year. Okay, now we're going to move on. Okay, so this is about The Replacements, Tim, which was uh, it's a tribute album to Sonic, to, uh, Sonic Youth and Foo Fighters' Sonic Highways. It was uh, released, <laughs> it was released um, uh, 29 years ago uh, because it, it wanted to get on the ground floor of the Foo Fighters' Sonic Highways. So Those highways, man. Am I right? Okay. Uh, this is about me, not about the record. So uh, I've actually spent way too much time writing about this record and it actually means a lot to me and uh for the listener at home people are currently opening beers in the room which is absolutely perfect for this record so i've i've established myself as a performer and an entertainer essentially (laughs) i'm the paul westerberg of tonight everybody i'm gonna throw a tv off this little stage i'll probably blame people for my own failings and i'll probably drink too much i'm gonna drive after this anyways uh, we're doing this in three parts. Uh, part one, the replacements in the Hungry Brain. The Hungry Brain is uh, is a bar that I started doing shows at nine years ago, and I started working there nine years ago. And it's closing in a, in a handful of days. And uh, the the reason why I wanted to do this record is because this is the record that uh, symbolizes the Hungry Brain to me, for better and worse, most likely worse. So um, I've gone through stages of grieving with this album and with the Hungry Brain closing. Uh, stage one is denial and isolation. I, I figured it was all just rumors. Uh, stage two is anger. The, the anger came when I found out it wasn't just rumors. Uh, uh, where were all these really nice people that said nice things on social media for the past few years? Why don't you just come to the fucking bar? Stop telling me that the bar is awesome. Just show up at the bar. That's mean. 
They, they didn't need to say anything, and they said something nice, yet I had reacted poorly, hence anger. Uh, stage three is bargaining. Uh, once I found out the brain's closing in October, uh, I, I ran through a few scenarios where I could become a partial owner and, and keep it open. And that obviously did not happen because it's still closing, but that is for the best because I should not be a partial owner in a bar, let alone a bar that is 700 miles away from where I live. And my wife is currently shaking her head no. Uh, number four was depression. Uh, uh, I've been in Chicago since Monday night. It is currently Saturday night. And uh, I could have stopped by the Hungry Brain on multiple nights, but I chose not to. Uh, and I haven't been too busy or too broke. I just didn't want to get sad. So uh, five is acceptance, and later tonight I'll be visiting the Hungry Brain one last time. And I am okay with this, and I have to be. And here's how this is tied to the Hungry Brain. Uh, do the replacements get together in 2014? Or does the ease of home recording make an unlikely cast of characters never get together? Do I know most of you without the Hungry Brain? I don't think I do, so... Uh, last night, I hated this album. I thought it was selfish and, and greedy. I felt like it was Paul Westerberg and friends just complaining about people that owe them. Um, and that's not a very DIY thing to do on a major label. But And all these guys are from the college rock scene from the 1980s. And it's always all guys. Always fucking four white guys. Um, uh, hashtag Gamergate. Have you been given more... <laughs> And these guys have been given everything, ever. Uh, if you can't make it work out for yourself, well, then you weren't trying hard enough. Once again, white male 80s, college rock. Okay. Not, things have not changed at all. But it's actually not complaining. The album is full of self-examination. It's not whining. Uh, left the Dial is not a screed against the music industry. It's actually just a love letter to music that the band loved. Uh, I'm not the kind of replacements fan that allowed the band to alter my life. Um, they broke up a few years before music was able to have a large impact on my life. Like a lot of Nirvana fans between the ages of 25 and 35, I found out about the replacement of a Michael Azarad's Our Band Could Be Your Life, which is this very quality read that I highly recommend about a bunch of bands that could have or should have achieved the level of success Nirvana achieved. Uh, there was like Sonic Youth, there was Husker Du, and there were replacements and a bunch of other bands. And the replacements were the band that was the most quote-unquote regular guys to me, uh, which means that they just seemed like drunk, so I could really relate to them. Uh, Tim, the album that we're going to be, that these uh, lovely people are going to be playing and I'm going to talk about, uh, that was my soundtrack to The Hungry Brain. Um, the album did not have the most played song at The Hungry Brain. That belongs to television's Marquee Moon. And the replacements weren't the most played artists. That would be The Hold Study, which is essentially the replacements with uh, better management of alcoholism. So... But the album lived on the jukebox since I started there uh, nine years ago. So I want these amazing people. Rockfalls, by the way, is the people I refer to as amazing people. The rest of the people in the room are just people. Get a fucking band, guys. Okay. Rockfalls is going to come up here and play one of the songs. He's going to play three songs total. That includes you tonight. Uh, welcome to the Fold. That's a Filter album. <laughs> filter is a band that's going to be on Ship Rocked, which is a cruise that I am going on in February. Not JKing, guys. Doing that because I have a successful life where I've been able to finagle my way. Finagle is a fantastic word all of you should be using. I have finagled my way onto a cruise ship that Limp Biscuit is headlining. I have an extra cabin. I could bring two people, if you want to come to Miami with me, Super Bowl week, to go see Limp Biscuit, Buckcherry, Filter, Chevelle on a cruise. I didn't mention Andrew WK because he seems like a fun guy, and he's actually kind of cool. Why did you sigh when I say that? He's a nice man. He isn't. You'd like him? You want you, Seth? Do you want to come to Ship Rock with me? Seth Vanek, who loves Bjork and me, Ship Rock 2015. <laughs> Anyways, that's what Tim is about. It's about Ship Rock 2015. 
By the way, uh, Sonic Highway's Foo Fighters available for sale at Saki Records. They, ha- they know their demo, guys. They understand West Logan Square loves the Foo. <laughs> Annie, you ready? Why don't you introduce these people that usually aren't with you? Uh, well, for the listeners at home, <clears throat> to my right is Andrew Trim. <laughs> and to my left is Dave Miller. And they're, they're both super awesome guitar players, which you will see in a moment. Don't fuck up, guys. We're also doing a replacements record. Feel free to fuck up. It yeah. does not matter. <laughs> Just play shit loud. <laughs> Where you take one step and miss the whole first run Dreams unfulfilled Graduate unskilled It beats picking cotton and waiting to be forgotten We are the sons of no one Bastards of young We are the sons of no one Bastards of young Daughters and the sons Clean your baby womb Trash that baby boom Elvis in the ground There ain't no beer tonight Income tax deduction What a hell of a function It beats beating cotton And waiting to be forgotten We are the sons of no one, bastards of young. We are the sons of no one, bastards of young. Daughters and the sons. Unwillingness to claim us. Got no word to name us. their graves on holidays at best the ones who love us least are the ones we'll die to please if it's any consolation I don't begin to understand them we are the sons of no one bastards of young we are the sons of no one bastards of young Daughters and the sun. No. No.
stage. That was fantastic. Rock Falls is a very talented band. When I say Rock Falls, I just mean her. Fantastic, everybody. That was very good, guys. I'm proud of you. This one guy just met me tonight. He's unsure if he wants to be here, and that's kind of the point of both this series and this album. All right, we're going to go to part two of this whole debacle, uh, when that's the actual songs on the album. Not just my feelings, guys, because uh, even though I have a sweater, it's not always about me. <laughs> When's the last time you shave fully? Do you even know how you look anymore? No. That's fine. We're going to get to that later. Hold My Life, track one. That was played regularly at The Hungry Brain, and it's a great song, but it's not the best song on the album. It was played the most, though, because it is the first track. Uh, when people aren't sure what song they want to hear, they tend to choose the first song on the album, and that is never a smart decision. Uh, the track most likely to be a 30 to 90 second instrumental track is also usually track one. That explains why Mars Volta's first track on their first album is also in the top 10 no songs played at the Hungry Brain. That is a bullshit 50 second like, before it gets to the eight minute drums, we did a lot of psychedelic drugs tracks. So don't always play track one, guys. Play tracks two or three. Also, Korn's album. <laughs> this is about Korn, by the way. Korn's album, what was it? Was it, was it Follow the Leader? I'm looking at Goodrich right now because you know exactly what I'm talking about. The one with uh, the, the animated video and there was a Todd McFarlane cover. Is that the, there was a third. That Korn album starts with like a minute and 12 seconds of silence. People used to return that album in droves to Circuit City, my favorite record store. Give it up for Circuit City, guys. A fantastic establishment. Go find out your local Circuit City and support local businesses. I'll buy his track true, and it's a brilliant song, especially for any service worker. Uh, it, it's a customer is always right song, but the kind of song most folks let just fade in the background. And if you're working and not enjoying the customers like I did most nights when I worked the door at the Hungry Brain and want a subtle fuck you to the messenger, that is the song we would always play. And it was fun because no one else gave a shit. Uh, Kiss Me on the Bus is track three, and it's a hit! Uh, whether or not the general public ever knew it. Uh, I've seen people play this to impress a date. And sometimes it actually worked uh, every time the couple did ride the bus to the brain, which was, is located off two major bus routes, the Western 49 and the Belmont 72. Are those the actual numbers? Because I did this out of memory. I haven't lived here in four years. I, 77. Shit. Thank you. I'm glad I brought that up. I'm going to keep it 72. One mile from the blue line and one mile from the red line. And the song resonated in ways that I didn't initially understand because you really shouldn't kiss people if you ride the bus. You should just become rich. Moving on. <laughs> Yeah. Get off your fucking phones, guys. This is about connections. Connections. <laughs> Everything is silly. Uh, Dose of Thunder is a song no one played. Okay, uh, moving on. Waitress in the Sky. It sounds like a sweet Hank Williams ode to a flight attendant, and it is not. It's a mean-spirited ditty about a rude airline worker, and I prefer to, prefer to hear it the way I initially heard it, and Westerberg is wrong on this one. Or I thought he was wrong. I actually did research on this album after I wrote the first draft, and I'm glad I was wrong. Uh, this is from the July 2008 issue of the UK magazine Uncut. They had an in-depth interview with Westerberg about all the replacements, records and his solo records, and it's very good, and I highly recommend it. From Westerberg, Waitress in the Sky has been misconstrued since day one. It came from my sister, who was a flight attendant, and she used the phrase in disgust, explaining that she was treated like a waitress in the size in the sky. So I took, some, uh, I took the role of the demanding bastard in the airplane, by the way, airplane is spelled A-E-R-O plane because it's a British publication. Get it right, guys. Who expects the flight attendant to be a nurse and a maid? Some took it as a slam, but it was me trying to speak through her experiences. Nobody ever threw a drink on me over it. 
The first two songs on Tim that had the ability to bring me to tears, uh, a Swingin' Party is a scarily effective intervention song. An hour after close, alone in the bar, finishing up cleaning duties, cleaning the final dishes, and this song comes on the jukebox, and the lyrics seem to repeat in your head. You close up, you lock the door, you wait for a bus because I was fucking dumb, and even though I should have took a cab because I was carrying cash home. I sh- why did I take a fuck? I took a bus. I took two different buses to get home for three miles. Three mi- I should have just walked or taken a cab. Anyways, I was saved. My- some drunk saved my life. This is off script. Off script. Ooh, I was so on script before. Some drunk saved my life at the Hungry Brain. Um... I was there closing up. It was a really dead night, and I was going to close up around 12.30. But my great friend had came in, and he was like, I want to party. I was like, I'm technically working, so I'll sit here. Will you? And I, do, I did that, and I closed up at 2. And at 1, 1 a.m., when I would have been waiting for a bus, a cop was murdered by a homeless lady. So it was pretty cool. Thanks, replacements. You got my back. White males. Anyways, <laughs> if you find yourself alone listening to certain songs at 3 a.m., like this song, you're going to be in a dangerous place. Of all the songs I've heard at the Hungry Brain Jukebox, this is the one that always made me very wistful. I did not grow up with this song, uh, and this song was never a big part of my life until I worked there. But regardless, it's the one that made me feel like we're all in a movie montage, and in this movie, things don't work out. It's a sad movie, but not like a European sad movie when there's like amazingly attractive people and they're topless women for no fucking reason. Just... We're in a bar. It's like actual life cheers, and it's just not a fun experience. Bastards of Young was the most played song, and for a very, very good reason. Um, and I'm sorry about quoting here, and I hate when people do that, but I'm going to do it right now. Dreams unfulfilled, graduate unskilled. Every person, every single regular at the Hungry Brain has related to that couplet at least while drinking one too many beers. And the song is also a sing-along by the second chorus, and I've seen it multiple times. Once again, alcohol and drugs work. The solo is not basic. By the way, I'd like to point out, both the gentlemen on the guitar tonight started to play the same solo. I like that. And then you went into the, the reg- you played the uh, rhythm after, but you're like, I want to touch that lead guitar. I fucking get it, man. I get it. Not everyone could be lead guitar. You'd never heard the song before. God, how old are you? Seriously, how old are you? I'm 32. We're the same age. Where'd you go to high school? <laughs> Lay it down, clown's best asset is its placement on the album. Put here comes a regular after bastards and all lives are lost. It's a rocker. Uh, with pointless but fun part, and that's a very good call. Left of the Dial is the love letter to college radio and independent radio and public radio and things other white college-educated people listen to. It's also the name of a box set of mid of uh, 1980s college radio songs, and it also has the line, Grown old in a bar, you grow old in a bar. And it's about the Midwest, and uh, it's the song everyone in the bar hears, regardless if they're listening. Uh, from that same July 2008 Uncut magazine, they had a nerve, blah, 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 blah. Left of the Dial is about college radio, and of course, that's where all of our airplane come from. It was colleges where we used to play. The irony that four guys, none of us who had a high school diploma, would play col- every college in America is ridiculous. It never dawned on us that these kids had to go to study for tests their next day, so we ended up going to college in an odd kind of way. I want to have them come up here and play this song. Um, this is... Uh, a kind of a hit, I guess, if you ever listen to... Co- when I do this, that means come to me, by the way. Jesus Christ. This guy's a jazz performer. He's high on heroin right now. Are you also a jazz musician? Yeah, they both You are. dabble? Ooh, I don't like you people at all. Look at you. You're so fucking high right now. You probably like that Miles Davis guy. Yuck. That's all I'm saying. It's some good American music. No one, no one in America likes jazz. That's not an American art form. That's the that's the joke I was making. I thank you so much. Why don't you shut the fuck up and play your guitar like the monkey you are? Now I'm treating. Now this is a bit. 
This is a bit because that's how the people in the replacements treated each other. So in a way, we're just being loyal to the band we all love, and he's never heard them before. You've never heard them. Where'd you grow up? Wheaton. Wheaton? Really? Yeah. Shit, son. All right. Shut up. You're from Wheaton. You don't get to talk. You got to go believe in Christ and not dance. Did, where'd you go to college? I went to Northern. You went to Northern? Oh. Why, weren't you, why didn't you try harder in high school? Why'd you go to Northern? Music? Ooh, is that a good music school? Yeah. Cool. You ended up here with me no matter what, though. <laughs> Shit worked out, son. Is it condescending when people say son to a man that's the same age as them? <laughs> you like high school football? All right, son, get on board. After this, we're all going to watch Friday Night Lights. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for Rock Falls.
didn't mention your name And if I don't see you In a long, long while I'll try to find you Left to the die 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 Left to the That was good. That was good. I liked it. Thank you so much. <laughs> Here, for the listener at home, I want to point out that, like, there are, I see so many empty seats in front of me. I see eight empty seats in front of me. And I see more than eight people, of which I know, in the far back, as close to the door as possible. <laughs> How many times could you do something in life as opposed to not in life? How many times could you do something and, uh, it's no, it's no longer just like, oh, it was an excuse. That's just who you are. Because this is the fifth time we've done this. And uh, this is the fifth time in a row where I've ran through every single note I've written down. And I, and I, and I stretch it out as far as possible and, and use twice as many words that I need to use. Because I'm about to scream about everything. And that's just like who you are as a person. That's fucked up. Like I'm at the level where if I bring this into my normal day-to-day life, I need to be heavily medicated. That's not right. That that does not relate to this album in any way. It's interesting because like Seth sits up here and he and he does something that's very sincere, and I do something that's very sincere, and then I fucking talk about the Foo Fighters record. <laughs> <laughs> like I can't just sit here and be like, "These are my feelings." I'm like, "No, look at she and him. Don't they look fucking weird? What a bunch of weirdos! Look at M Ward, what a fucking dick." No, he's fine. He's probably not fine. He's probably a fucking dick. But that's not the point. No, this was not built as like Brandon Weatherby's thoughts on the M Ward. No one gives a shit. Not that you give a shit about this. I know you're here because you're friends with me and you're friends with Seth and all that, and you like the the West Logan Square neighborhood so much. But it's just, I don't know. I, it, it's it's I self sabotage the same way this fucking band self sabotage. Every article I read about this record, both about the 1985 release and the 2008 re-release, was about how they didn't achieve their goals. It's fucking bullshit. We'll get to that later. That was a teaser, everybody. Let's finish the actual tracks on the album. Little Mascara seems uh, basic sandwich between Left the Dial and Here Comes a Regular. It's a heartfelt story song about lovable losers, and it fits within the replacements canon perfectly. And Here Comes a Regular, the final track on the album, uh, is the song no one wants to hear in a bar. No one. Uh, for the listener at home, I'd like to thank Goodrich, and I want to say fuck you to everyone else. <laughs> Goodrich, how are your thoughts? <laughs> Goodrich, you do a show here. True. Moving on, I'm going to cut that from the podcast. We get just as many laughs as this show has. I don't know if that's good or bad for oh, either of bad us. Luck. Bad for you. I'm pretty. S- okay. Uh, the, the Here Comes a Regular came on when I was uh, alone at the Brain mopping at 3 a.m., and I just fucking burst into tears, and I couldn't stop it. And uh, if I hear this song alone at night, I have to turn it off. And it will still put me in a weak place. I initially wrote this at 2.30 in the afternoon to be safe. And I felt like I was in a weak place. I listened to the album today. 
and here comes regular came on. At the end of my run, because I care about physical fitness, because I care about things like football, get on board, jazz musician. <laughs> it's really weird to hear, here comes a regular on your fucking, like, your, your mix of running songs. No one puts here comes regular. Guys, I got this spin class I'm going to. What should we play? Just play the replacements Tim the whole way through. People will love it. It's 36 minutes. That's a bad idea. Another um, uh, this title Tim it means nothing. It, it's not about anybody named Tim. It's just like a cool thing. Um, I like to refer it as the one with "Here Comes a Regular" because that song is the regular, and Rock Falls is going to close the show with that song. But I have a lot more to say. <laughs> shut up! Shut the fuck up! You shut up! My show. <laughs> Part three. Critical darlings. <laughs> like me. I'm pretty critical darling. You know what's sad? I am a critical darling. No one in like uh, respectable media has said anything bad about me. It doesn't mean I'm good. It just means that they have a fucking byline and they have to fulfill it and they don't have enough content to write about. So I just submit the press releases at like the perfect time. I'm a critical darling, guys. Anyways, uh, Rolling Stone included this in their 500 greatest albums of all time, the one that was released in 2012, and it comes in at 137, just behind Elton John's greatest hits, which is an amazing record, and just ahead of Dr. Dre's The Chronic. Um, and here's what an uncredited... No, it's, that's pretty cool. There's Dre Day, everybody. Uh, by the way, the next important records Rock Falls and I are going to do, Run the Jewels too, because we're white. So uh, here's what an uncredited writer wrote. On the mats, I'd like to point out that I have not used the word mats once. That's what Uber fans would use, but those guys are assholes. Uh, on the mats, major label debut, singer-guitarist Paul Westerberg uh, sings brilliantly from heroic power chord swagger, Bastards of Young, to shabby contemplation. Here comes a regular. No pre-Nirvana band did it better. Um, and actually, the album was loved by Rolling Stone when it came out, too. This is from Tim Holmes' tw- November 21st, 1985 review from Rolling Stone, which is actually really, really good. In this era of synthetic sound, an increased emphasis on the cosmetics of media generality. The replacements are probably too good to be true. Well, they haven't exactly reinvented the foursome guitar-based drums lineup. They have dramatically reaffirmed its primal essence without pandering to any old fogey. Who used old fogey? What a throwback word, guys. We've got to bring that back into the lexicon. Goodrich, when was the last time you used the word lexicon in your act? Read a fucking book, buddy. The reason why I feel completely justified doing that is if you've ever seen any footage of the replacements, this is kind of how it is. It's a train wreck, and it's a delight. (laughs) Any old fogey revivals, tendencies, or formulaic banalities. They jolt the nervous system with the disturbing correctness of their sound, a nose-thumbing energy that plugs in and out of professionalism, and they grab the heart with the compassionate yet bratty conviction of their songs. If the replacement is to have a theme, it has to do with necessarily failure of fun and the equal necessary drive to have it. The band has a reputation for being boozy as an erratic, but they never back off from the truth. Tim is simultaneously mature and adolescent. Lead singer Paul Westerberg has developed an authorial voice capable of collapsing complex contradictions into a single phrase. I'm going to skip the rest because it's pretty much just saying they're as good as Springsteen, which I agree. They are as good as Springsteen, except unlike Springsteen, they never fucking suck. Springsteen's horrible. If you like Bruce Springsteen, you should stop playing music. I'm assuming if you like Bruce Springsteen, you're not in this room. That's to the world in a whole. <laughs> From the Pitchfork Review by Mark Richardson, published September 26, 2008, for the Rhino reissue, the viewer gave it an 8.7, but it's a poorly overwritten, much-too-long article, mostly about the production values of the record. But there is one decent takeaway. And I'd like to point out that there are like 
way worse things. The stereogum examination of this record is much, much, much worse. But the city pages, the Minneapolis-St. Paul Alt-Weekly's examination of the said records are very, very good and highly worth your time, and I recommend reading it. Let's go back to Pitchfork because it's always fun to laugh at them. Westerberg's POV also dovetailed perfectly with his band's career arc in the way that in retrospect seems uncanny. He celebrated people with talent who were scared of growth, those ready to upset the natural order of things, not out of careful considerations of power relationships, as was the case with politically oriented punk, but because they were either hopelessly bored, had childlike curiosity, or were just plain afraid. The outlook he tapped into was more universal than he could have imagined, and he'd have been underrepresented in rock music until he came along. Now, of course, they're indie rock staples. I'm admitting some boring shit here, but here's the good takeaway. Their songs touch on some heavy shit, the kind of feelings best expressed in a more intimate space, but there's also plenty of room in there for some laughs. Uh, here is my absolute favorite line from the research. Uh, from It's a, the Paste Magazine subhead for their 2008 Rhino reissue of Tim, Please to Meet Me, All Shook Down, and Don't Tell So. A great band that let greatness slip away. And that's right. Like at that point, it's just like, what the fuck did people want from this band? Like, what did you? Did, were they supposed to fucking buy you a house? Like, no act, not one act ever has pleased anybody. From a 2007 examination from the BBC, writer Tim Nelson framed the album this way: Before grunge, alt country, and emo, there was the Replacements, among the earliest of American post-punk bands. And with this album, the first 1980s quote-unquote underground band assigned to a major label. Pippin, I don't know what that word means, Pippin, Piers, R.E.M., and Husker due to that particular post. 1985's Tim caught the band on the cusp between thrash and suburban alienation and vaulting singer-songwriter ambition. So let's start with the, the, the peers that he compared them to, R.E.M. and Husker do. Well, according to every critic ever, as soon as R.E.M. signed to a major label, they suck. So fuck them, they're done forever. Husker do never even came close. The, by the time the replacements were done, they were selling out the Aragon, and they were opening for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Yes, it didn't go well, but they still got to cash that check. What more did people want from them? Husker Du broke up in 87. They never came closer. They were lucky to sell out Metro. In other words, for the people at home, it's a 1,200-room club. It's a big fucking difference. And it's for the bands that influenced the replacements. The Beatles sucked because of Yoko. The Stones have sucked since the 80s. Zeppelin sucked after four, etc. Inevitably, after eight albums, things just end. That's natural. That's okay, and every, ugh, what did people expect? The main criticism of the album, both in 85 and in 2008 for the reissue, is the production of producer Tommy Ramone. And as someone that went into this album with very few facts about the band, I knew they were from Minneapolis, I knew they drank a lot, and they never quote-unquote made it. I didn't care in any way about this how this album could have sounded. Instead, I heard what's there. And why? And that's because that's all there is to hear. That's what albums are. It's You don't get to play... Uh, a choose-your-own-adventure garage band experiment with every album. You get to hear an album, or you make your own fucking album. That's all there is. None of these writers, and all the research I did, and all the people I talked to, not one of them mentioned that maybe the band should have never played together. One of the guys died from horrible alcoholism. The band was destructed due to horrible alcoholism. No one ever said, maybe the horrible alcoholics shouldn't just fucking tour. No, they said they didn't make it enough. They did exactly what they wanted to do for a very long time. They just couldn't let it be horrible pun and call back to their 1984 album. I apologize. Um, the Hungry Brain is the highest-reviewed bar on Yelp. It has a 4.5 rating with 197 reviews. And who gives a shit? I've performed there more than 100 times. I worked there more than 100 nights. And I made more 
than a hundred friends. Okay, that last part's a lie. It's more like acquaintances, but that's not the point. <laughs> Those are really nice reviews that people left, but that doesn't mean anything. The nice words that people said about Tim don't mean much either. My experience with both this album and that bar have nothing to do with reviews and what other people think. Is the Hungry Brain a great bar that let greatness slip away? No, it's not. It's a place. And it's the same way the replacements were a band. Both did their thing for a while and made highly critical select group of drinkers very happy. <laughs> Neither let greatness slip away. It's not about what could have been. It's about what's on the record, and it's about what's in that actual bar. The record ends, and the bar will close, and both did a very fine job. That's it. That's the takeaway from this record. And I want you guys to perform the song that always makes me cry. Put your hands together for Rock Falls. Someone's gonna show up, never fear. 
with sad eyes. He says, opportunity knocks once, then the door slams shut. All I know is I'm sick of everything that my money can buy. The fool who wastes his life, God rest his guts. First the lights, then the collar goes up, and then the wind begins to blow. Turn your back on a pay you back last call. First the glass, then the leaves that pass, and then comes the snow. Ain't much to rake any 